Well, good morning. Uh, as Tim said, my name is Jess Joles. I am a, a student at Gordon-Conwell, and as part of being a student at Gordon-Conwell, there's um, mentor ministry that uh, they ask you to do, be involved in the church, be serving in a church, and part of that mentor ministry is here is being part of a preaching team. And so it is a privilege. It is um, a great calling. Um, it is a wonderful opportunity uh, to be here with you and to hopefully, um, as we look into God's Word, um, more than anything, to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, uh, that our hearts might be drawn to Him, that we might be compelled uh, by the loving kindness of our God uh, and realize that um, in the midst of all things, uh, He's not far away, but He is near. We've been in a series uh, this last few weeks speaking about renewal and, and talking about what does it look like to be in the process or what does it look like for God to renew a people. And most of us in here would agree at some point in time in our lives or even right now you would understand that I am in the need of renewal. I'm in need of God to do something in my life to bring about renewal. And yet what we're going to see today in Scripture is that sometimes our perspective of renewal, our understanding of renewal is one thing, while God's perspective of renewal actually looks like something else. And sometimes that seems foreign to us. That renewal doesn't always appear to be the thing that we expect it to be. Sometimes God in His divine goodness and His loveliness begins the process of renewal in a place where we say, is this really God at work? Can this really be God's work? Because I don't see renewal. I don't feel renewal. In fact, if I were to be honest with you, I feel anything but renewal. So what does it look like for God to be involved in your renewal? What does it look like for the one who is near to renew you. I want to begin with hopefully a sanctified imagination here. Imagine yourself uh, living in the kingdom of Babylon. And you're a Jew. You're an Israelite. Maybe you grew up there. Maybe you were born there. Maybe you were deported to there in the exile 70 years before. But you're living in Babylon. And each day you wake up with this idea of I wonder what it would be like to go home. What would it be like to go back? I've heard stories of what it was like. And each day you live in this anticipation that according to Jeremiah, at some time this would happen. You have this hope, this anticipation, this expectation that someday I'm going to go home and renewal will begin. God will visit His people again and will go home. And then the day comes. And the edict is called out. And Cyrus says, according to the God of Israel, go. Can you imagine the buzz? The excitement, the anticipation, people being so forward about, I'm going home. 
I'm going home. God is renewing us. He's beginning a process. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what we've been hoping for. And even those who can't go home are contributing to the journey. And each person greets each other each day in the market by saying, we're going home. We're going home. Our hope. We're going home. The day comes when you leave Babylon and you begin that journey northwest away from Babylon into the Fertile Crescent. As you turn south, you pass the city of Dan and you remember stories about the city of Dan. And you keep going south and you see Mount Tabor. And you keep going south and you see the Jordan River. And amazingly, you pass through Samaria. And the anticipation is building. The crowd is around you. People are excited. You're heading now up to Jerusalem, that long ascent to Jerusalem. And you see little glimpses of Jerusalem, little peaks of it as you go up the ascent. And it's building. And there's hope. And there's joy. And there's anticipation. And as you draw closer, your heart sinks. Your expectations drop out from underneath you to the point where your knees almost want to hit the ground. You begin to hear the weeps and the sobs of the people around you. Through burning tears, you see the city come closer as you approach, and there's nothing but destruction, there's nothing but rubble. There's nothing but ruin. And the joy that you experience coming up all of a sudden quickly turns to fear as you remember as you were coming into the promised land, people didn't greet you kindly. They didn't offer for you to stay. They were not cheering as you began the process of moving in. All of a sudden you realize our city is in destruction. There's rubble all around us and there's people here who don't like us. And they don't want us here. And fear rushes in. And you begin to ask the question, did I make a mistake? Is God in this? Where's, where's my hope now? As we turn to Ezra, we're going to look into what... It, appears to be a point of loneliness, a point of lowness within this exile journey back to Jerusalem. Open your Bibles to page 375. If it's a pew Bible. If it's your Bible, I'm not sure what page 375 is. But if it's a pew Bible, it's on page 375. And what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at God's version of renewal. We're going to look at what God means by renewal. Read with me in chapter 3, verse 1. Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in the towns. The people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jezodek, with his fellows, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them, because the peoples of the land 
and they offered burnt offerings to the Lord. Burnt offerings in the morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booze, as it is written. And they offered daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. As Israel returns to the promised land with the anticipation of the renewal that God is going to bring, with the anticipation of what God has promised to do, their hearts sink in the midst of what the Bible describes as great fear. Their renewal begins in the midst of fear. Their renewal begins in the midst of all the things that they could possibly be afraid of. They arrive to the city, the people who are living there now for up to 70 years and even 200 years in Israel and Samaria are people who are their enemies. All around them, they are surrounded by those who would be opposed to them. Everywhere they turn, they turn to the south, they turn to the north, they turn to the east, they turn to the west. Everywhere around them, people surround them who are not for them, but against them. They're returning to the land that God had brought them to originally, but now they're in enemy territory. The fear that grips them is so significant that it's the same idea of terror or dread. It's the same word that that Rahab uses when Israel is coming into the land for the first time and she's living in Jericho and she says, you know what? My people have heard of your God and they've heard of your people and what he did to the Egyptians and how they died in the Red Sea and we are undone. We are in dread. We are in fear. As the people return to Israel, the first thing they're struck with is dread, is fear. And so the question becomes, how do they respond in the midst of fear? It's all-encompassing. This is a fear that drives them ultimately to question, what's going to happen to me? These things are out of my control. I don't have the ability to contain this. I don't have the ability to make this better. I don't have the ability within my own resources to do anything about this. I'm scared. I'm afraid. Look at verse 3. Here's how they respond. They set the altar in its place for fear was on them because the people of the lands and they burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings in the morning and in the evening. In the midst of their greatest fear, and even in in the text it says because of their fear, this fear drove them to not despair, but to actually turn their eyes on God and say, God, in the midst of our fear, in the midst of our dismay, in the midst of all the things that would shake us to the ground, we look at You. We fix our eyes on you and we're going to rebuild the altar. And the altar was a picture of God's loving provision throughout the whole time of the Exodus. That I'm going to provide for you. I will be your Savior. I will be the one who comes, comes to you and, and is the one who, who, who brings you out of slavery. I am the one who is with you. 
And because of the character of God, their eyes are driven to him and they build the altar and they say, Lord, in the midst of all my fear, we're going to worship you. In the midst of everything that would bring us to our knees, our eyes are going to be fixed on you. We will worship you. This type of response in this type of situation reveals ultimately who they look to in the midst of their fear. Martin Luther, who was very accustomed with fear, as he was leading the Reformation, said this, that which you look to, that which you run to, that which your heart flies to, in the midst of any situation, is properly your God. That which your heart is drawn to, our hearts fly to the Lord because we realize that He is the God in the midst of the greatest fear that we can be confronted with. We look to Him. So here's Israel. In the midst of great vulnerability and fear, and their eyes are drawn to Him because where else are they going to go? And it reminds me of John 6, when people are leaving Jesus, in droves they're leaving Jesus, and John looks at the disciples and he says, where are you guys going to leave me too? Are you going to leave also? And Peter looks at him and says, you have the words of eternal life, where else are we going to go? In the midst of fear, they look at God and they say, you are the God of eternal life, you are the one who satisfies us, you are the one who is good. Where else are we going to go? They turn to Him. You might be thinking, okay, Jess, that's that's great, but you, you don't understand the fear that I have. You don't understand the darkness that I face. You don't understand the challenges that are in my life. You don't understand what going home today is going to be like. You don't understand what going to school tomorrow is going to be like. You don't understand what it's like to have a relationship with this person in my life. You don't know what it's like for me to walk in the door when I get home and immediately I'm struck with fear because I don't know what's going to happen next. In the midst of fear, God draws our hearts in worship. And our hearts fly to Him. God's people worship Him in the midst of fear. And that is part of the renewal process. God's people worship Him in the midst of fear and that is part of of the renewal process. So we talked about the worshiping in the midst of fear. And their hearts are drawn to the Lord. And yet there's another problem that they have. There's another major encumbrance that they're faced with. And as you read verses 6 through 8, we're confronted with a major Major problem. From the first day of the seventh month, 
They began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. I'll read that again. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and to the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrians. Tyrians, there we go, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that the king from King Cyrus of Persia. Now, in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, made a beginning together with the rest of the kinsmen the priests, the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. So they've got the altar set up. In the midst of fear, they're drawing their attention to the Lord, and the altar is set up. And yet as they look at everything around them, everything's in rubble. All around them is the evidence of brokenness. Is the evidence of of a life that's been abandoned, run away from God. It's not that God ran away from them, but that they ran away from God. In the midst of all of that is the reminder of the rubble of their lives lived in opposition to God. The city is broken down. The city that used to be called the city of David. Their national identity lays in rubble. The city wall is in rubble. It's broken down. What would have amounted to national security for them, right now, sheep walk in and out of the city, unabated. Everybody can just walk in and out. There's donkeys running everywhere. They're living in the midst of wild kingdom, and nothing is stopping animals from running everywhere. There is no security whatsoever. There's nothing to hide behind. They're entirely vulnerable. And then there's the temple of the Lord that lies in broken rubble on the ground before them. And they're reminded this is what our relational rebellion against a loving God looks like. This is what our relational rebellion against a loving God who gave Himself to us Looks like, hello. And in the face of that, they find the courage to clear the rubble piece by piece and the first stone drops and the second stone drops and the third stone drops and they begin to rebuild the temple. And I'll argue this. That they find the courage to rebuild the temple. Not based upon their own courage, but based upon who God is and what the temple resembled. It resembled His very presence with them. And in the midst of the rubble, what they wanted to be reminded of more than anything else was the intimate presence of of God with them. Lord, we have rebelled against You. In relationship with You, we have committed adultery against You. And yet as You renew us, as we come back to You, we're reminded of the rubble. We're reminded of the relational rebellion. But in the midst of it, 
You're renewing us. You're renewing us in the midst of the rubble. And our eyes are turned to You as we begin to rebuild the temple and we're worshiping You because our eyes are fixed on You and we see that You're the God who is faithful. You're the God who is still with us. Everything else around them, all the perceived understanding of prosperity, of provision, of protection, everything else that people would look at and say, hey, here's a safe place to be. All of that is gone and all they have is the Lord and they begin to rebuild the temple because they realize that their hope is in Him and in Him alone. Can you imagine on 9-11 when the planes crash into those towers and they come down, can you imagine if the response of our government was to say, we're not going to rebuild those, those towers, we're going to start building a church there. Because right now our eyes are not on our own sufficiency. Our eyes are on the Lord. The Maker of heaven and earth. The One who is good. That's what this amounts to. What this amounts to is that their hearts are inclined to Him because of who He is. And it's resembled or it's revealed in their worship of God in the midst of renewal because of His character. So they worship in the midst of fear. But why? Why would they worship in the midst of fear? And they worship in the midst of rubble, but why? Why would they worship in the midst of rubble? Thankfully, the answer to that question is here also. So take a look at verses 10 and 11. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of, the king, of David, the king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout. And when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. In the midst of fear, they worship. In the midst of rubble, they worship. And the centerpiece of their worship has nothing to do with the external reality with which they were surrounded by. The reality of their worship is embedded. It's based upon. It's thriving on. It is excited by the reality of who God is. That in the midst of fear, He is good and His steadfast love, His faithfulness never changes. In the midst of rubble, that He is good and His steadfast love never changes. In the midst of everything that's going on around them, in the midst of the sheep running in and out of the city, unabated, His steadfast love endures forever. That camel walking out of the city right now, His steadfast love endures forever. In the midst of all of it, His steadfast love endures forever. 
forever. And their hearts are reminded of His goodness and the only proper response in the midst of that, that He has wonderfully inclined their hearts and built their hearts for is praise and worship. In the midst of fear, they worship. In the midst of rubble, they worship. Why? Because He's wonderfully worthy of it. He's wonderfully worthy of it. And as our eyes catch a glimpse of His wonder and His majesty, they worship. No matter the fear, no matter the rubble, that hasn't changed. But their eyes are inclined, their hearts are inclined, they're drawn to Him because of His character, because of His goodness, and they worship Him. You say, okay, well, Jess, what's the connection to us? I'm going to try and connect the dots a little bit here. Hopefully I won't mess it up. I've not looked at you guys at all up there. I'm sorry. <laughs> Hi. Um, I'm, I, I apologize. Um, I'll look at you guys the rest of the time. So, <laughs> here's the connection between this temple being built, this altar being built, and what happens 500 years later. What happens 500 years later is Herod begins to build or add to or make this temple more grand. Forty years after that, a carpenter walks into that same temple at the end of Matthew, turns over tables, scatters the camels are running out and the sheep are running out, the pigeons, everything scatters. And he sits down in that same temple and it says, the lame, the crippled, the blind came to him and he healed them. The glory of the Lord has entered that temple and it's the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? He is the one that the building of this temple anticipates. He's the one that the altar anticipates. He's the one who came into that very same temple 540 years later, which had been rebuilt by Herod a little bit, but either way, it's the same temple. It's the same one that Jesus, as a man and as God's Son, sat in. And the lame, the broken, the blind, the people who were in rubble, the people who were in fear, came to Him and He healed them. He says, this is what the temple is about. It's about me being with my people in the midst of their brokenness, and I heal them. And I renew them in all of it. And I will give my life for you. And your sin will be poured out on me. And my Father will resurrect me because I love you. You are my bride. And I'm jealous for you. And I'll renew you. Because I am good. And I'm faithful. And my Father jealously desires the Spirit that He placed within me. If you know Christ today, you are in the midst of renewal. It doesn't matter your fear. It matters, but it doesn't matter. 
It doesn't matter your role. It matters, but it doesn't matter. Why? Because He is with you. There's one who stands in heaven right now who intercedes for you, who still has the scars on his hand and on his feet and his side and on his brow. And he says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And my soul pours out for you. He is good. Amen. He is faithful. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we, just like the Israelites, are unworthy of Your goodness, of Your faithfulness. But we praise You because of who You are. We worship You because of who You are. We love You because You first loved us. We're satisfied in You because there's no one else who can satisfy us. You are a good Father. Jesus, You are a loving, faithful Savior and brother. And Father, we're so thankful for Your Holy Spirit that You bind us together with You in love to be sons and daughters as You renew us. And we're thankful for the promise that you hold us in your hand and no one can take us out of your hand. And no one takes us out of the hand of your son, Jesus. And we are secure in you, even in fear, even in rubble. We turn our eyes to you because you are faithful and you are good. So we praise you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.